First uh, Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 and 14 says. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. When Paul says or when God says through Paul to men to act like men, he means something. Contrary to conventional views, man means something. Manhood is meaningful, not meaningless. So what does it mean to act like men? What does God mean when he calls men to act like men? And that's the question that is before us in this series of sermons. Last week, we looked at the word of God to gain an understanding of biblical manhood. And here is a sentence of what we came up with. All men have been created by God in his image to humbly and lovingly lead in a God-glorifying direction by happily assuming sacrificial responsibility. That describes manliness. What we'll do now for the next few weeks is follow this biblical manliness into relationships. So what does it look like in marriage? What does it look like in parenting? And what does it look like in the church and society? This morning, what does this look like in marriage? What is a manly husband, according to God? But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Would you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, we sit and stand before you this morning with your word in front of us and your spirit in and among us. And we ask that you would give us the help that we need to see clearly, to know you in your word and to be changed by you through your word. I do pray especially for all of the men that are here today, young and old, I pray especially for the husbands and the husbands-to-be in this room today, that they would be ultimately blessed by your word and that their wives and children then would be blessed by your word, blessing their husbands and fathers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So up until that point in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, everything that God created was good. Everything that God created was actually very good. But... Adam without Eve was, God said, not good. And generally speaking, a womanless man is not good. Not for long. 
It's not that it was just not good for Adam to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. So those of you men who are married, you are on the right track. You are, as Proverbs 18.22 has said, you have found a wife, and he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So those of you men who are husbands today, you are on the right track. That is a good thing to find a wife. Of course, we have men here who are not married. We have men who are unmarried among us. We have young men. We have boys who are among us. You should listen. You should desire marriage. You should, those of you men and young men and boys, at some point who are not married, you should desire, Genesis 2.24, to leave your father and mother and be united to your wife. So that is exactly what God does for Adam. He brings Adam a wife. He does not bring Adam an animal. He does not bring Adam wives. He does not bring Adam a husband. It is not Adam and Eve's. It is not Adam and Steve. It is Adam and Eve. This is God's solution to the problem of man being alone. And we see man's reaction. We see Adam's reaction in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. He's filled with joy. As his wife is presented to him, he is filled with joy. And he sings over her. He pronounces, he speaks forth poetry over her. He had no one like him to love, to love him, to enjoy, to help, be helped by, to laugh with, to share with, to honor God with. And now he had this companion in his wife. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and has been shown favor from God. So as we look at husbands today, this is for current husbands and future husbands. Current husbands, this is the kind of husband that you should be. Future husbands, this is the kind of husband that you will need to be. For that matter, unmarried women who are here today, this is the kind of husband that you are looking for. Married women who have this kind of husband, be thankful and filled with gratitude. Married women who do not have this kind of husband, this is what you're hoping for. This is what you are praying for. This is what you are longing for. And in the meantime, finding all of your needs met in Christ, whose grace is more than sufficient for you.
So we will get to a, a sketch, uh, five things, not an exhaustive list by any means, but a sketch of what a manly husband must be. But first, we need to lay a theological foundation. And then we'll build on that theological foundation. First, before we sketch out what a manly husband sort of looks like, we need to understand, number one, what marriage is, and number two, what headship is. Because our text today, 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, the head of a wife is her husband. So a husband is the head of his wife. So we need to understand, be reminded, number one, what is marriage? And then number two, what is headship? Once we've laid that foundation, we can look at five ways a manly husband should look. So number one, what is marriage? What is marriage? Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is not a sacrament under the standard of church law. It is not a contract under the standard of civil law. It is a covenant under the standard of divine law. Marriage is instituted by God. It's his idea. It's his plan. The marriage covenant is a sacred bond, a solemn commitment with two covenanting parties making promises to one another. And you've seen this most likely take place and begin at a wedding. Marriage covenant is a sacred bond, a solemn commitment with two covenanting parties making promises to one another, entering into a covenant with one another. So the adulteress in Proverbs 2.17 who forsakes her husband, she forgets the covenant of her God. Because it's a covenant. Malachi. In chapter 2. Malachi addresses men. Who are crying and whining. Because God is not listening to them. And God tells them through Malachi. Why God is not listening to them. And it is. Because the Lord was witness. Between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So what is marriage? Marriage is a covenant. So now we're ready to answer number two. So what is headship? Well, covenants like marriage, have covenant heads. 
Where you find covenant relationships in the Bible, you find heads. In the marriage covenant, God has said that the husband is the head. So 1 Corinthians 11.3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. And Ephesians 5.23 says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So husbands, when you hear head of your wife, when you hear head of your household, hear covenant head. You are the head of that marriage covenant. You are in covenant with your wife and you are the head of that covenant. Now, that means more than you're the boss. It means more than being in charge. Being head does refer to leadership, but head does not mean as sadly it often does, the one who gets his way. Or the one who is in charge. Or the one who is most irritable. Or the one who is the loudest. Oftentimes in counseling when an individual is describing the home that they grew up in and they say something like, when asked, okay, who was the head of your house growing up? And often a response will be something like this. My dad was definitely the head of our house. And what that usually means is he was a jerk. In my experience, that's what that word definitely means. What he said, that's what happened. What he wanted, that's what he got. You didn't mess with dad. You didn't cross dad. You were afraid of dad. It was his way or the highway. Yeah, my dad was definitely the head in our home. That is not covenant headship. That's not what it means. Headship is not dictatorship. First, you have scriptures like 1 Peter 3, 7 that don't allow for that. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Or Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So that's not headship. So how are we to think of this? Marriage is a covenant. Husband, you are the head of that covenant. Well, listen, the Bible gives us two very important examples of this headship. Two very important examples of this headship. There are 
we could say, two heads of humanity. There are two representatives of humanity, and they are Adam and Christ. You've heard this. They are Adam and Christ. Now listen closely. This is very important for husbands to understand. Okay, I am ahead, and now I'm looking at headship in the Bible. All have been represented in Adam. Many have been represented in Christ. Both Adam and Christ acted on behalf of others, so much so that they whom they represented are described as being in Adam. You've heard this. And in Christ. We are in Adam and in Christ. They are our great heads. They are our representatives. And so, all are in Adam. Many are in Christ. Adam represented the human race acting on their behalf. Christ represented all those whom the Father had given Him and acted on her or their behalf. Now let's look at them one at a time. That's just an overview. First, let's look at Adam, our head. Now you go back in Genesis... We find that Adam is the first representative. Adam was in the garden as a head of humanity. This is how we have to understand this. Adam was in the garden as a head of humanity, which means that Adam was in the garden as your head. He was in your human being, right? He was your head. He was representing you in the garden. Obviously, you were not in the garden physically, but you, the Bible teaches, you were in the garden in Adam. You were not standing before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but you were standing before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Adam. That means that what Adam did you did. That means that when Adam sinned, you sinned. That means that when he sinned, when he rebelled, it plunged all of us into sin with him because he was there in the garden as our covenant head. We hear this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where we're told that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread. Listen to how this is said to us. And death spread to all men because all sinned. And you say, wait a minute. I didn't sin. That just said because all sinned in the garden. You say, I didn't sin. I wasn't there. You see? You were there in Adam because he was there as head of the human race. So that's why 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says that in Adam all die. 
because the entire human race is related to Adam by covenant. When Adam sinned, he sinned covenantally. Now, husbands, you need to be thinking this whole time. God says, I am the head of this covenant with my wife. So as we're talking about headship in the Bible, you're thinking and drawing out implications. Already you should be. Hosea 6, 7 says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So Adam was there in the garden as your representative. When he acted, you acted. When Tom McClintock acts or votes in Washington, you act and you vote. He is there as our representative. And so it is with Christ. Now we may think, I don't like that. Be careful because if you don't like that, you're not going to like how you're saved. But you may think, I don't like that. I don't, that's not fair. What you need to understand is Adam was also a good representative. He was an accurate representative. It would be foolish for us to think if I were there, I wouldn't have done that. He didn't represent me well. He did. He did. Number two, Christ is our head. So Adam is our head, and now Christ is our head. Christ was also in a garden, wasn't he? Christ also was before a tree, wasn't he? Christ is our second head. That's how he's described. 1 Corinthians 11.45 calls him the last Adam. And his headship, his representation works just like Adam's. This is God's economy. This is how God has set this up. So what Christ does, he does on behalf of those whom he represents, namely the church, the people of God, those whom the Father has given him. This means Christians, we who are in Christ, we say, don't we? Those of us Christians who are in Christ, when Jesus died, we died. When Jesus was buried, we were buried. When Jesus was raised, we were raised. When Jesus died, he didn't die instead of me. As in, he didn't come into the game and I went out. Actually, when Jesus died, I died. This is headship. This is representation. Romans 5, 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Christ our head, the many will be made righteous. Or in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried. Therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 6. 
we know that our old self was crucified with him. I died. I was buried. I was crucified. Verse 7, for one who has died, you've died, have been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. Again, we could say, I wasn't there. I didn't die with Christ. You did, just like you sinned with Adam. Adam was there as your head. Christ was there as your head. That's why Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I, Paul said, do you remember? I have been crucified with Christ. That's more than just Christ was crucified and it benefits me. I was crucified with Christ, Paul said. Christian, when Jesus died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was raised, you were raised. This is the gospel. Christ died that I may live. Not exactly, but we say that. And I know what you mean by it. Christ died that I may live. No, Christ died that I may die. Christ lived that I may live. He was and is my covenant head. So headship is how Adam got us into this mess. And headship is how Christ got us out of this mess. This is headship. Ephesians 5.23 for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Why all this theology? Why is this so important, man, that you understand what marriage is, that you understand what covenant is, that you understand what headship is? Because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, you are the head of your wife. Man, there is a sense in which if, if you and I were to grasp this gospel, and if you and I were to grasp this headship of Christ, the rest of this sermon would not even be necessary. To think about and grasp and understand what we just looked at, what headship is in the Bible, what our great head Christ did, and then in Ephesians 5, husbands being called, to be heads of their wives, even as Christ is the head of the church. You cannot, you cannot read that verse, Ephesians 5.23, and think of the headship of Christ and then think that headship means to rule over or secure submission from my wife or be harsh or be 
overbearing or dominate. You can't get those kinds of definitions for your headship if you understand the headship of Christ. You would never, ever, ever think that that's what headship means. And yet so many husbands were definitely the head of our home. So it's so important. Again, theology is so important. Sound doctrine is so important. That men, the husbands, we understand what God has called us to. Headship is authority to love. It is authority to serve. It is not a right to demand from your wife. It is a responsibility to bear. Those are very different. But you know as well as I know. That's not is not necessarily our common understanding of headship. Okay. So now we're ready to sketch out, I think, in more detail what a, a manly husband is. Current husbands, future husbands, this is who you need to be. This is who we need to be. Number one. Five, there's five of them. Number one, a manly husband knows Christ and loves him above all. Knows and loves. Knows Christ, loves Christ. So first of all, a manly husband knows Jesus. You've got to know Jesus because you're imitating him. That's why everything we just went over is so important. If you misunderstand who Jesus is and what he has done, you will not understand what a husband is and what a husband does. So for many, here's an, an illustration of this. For many professing evangelicals today, there is great misunderstanding of who Jesus was. The vision of Jesus is that he was this sort of passive evangelist who tried to save people. You sort of feel sorry for him as he's described. Poor Jesus. Knocking on the door of your heart. Inviting you. Asking you to open the door over and over. Please let me come in. Please let me come in. Won't you send me an invitation? Won't you please open your heart to me? Won't you please accept me? Won't you please allow me in won't you please i'm standing how do you feel you feel sorry for that jesus and if that's your understanding of jesus then you will also be a passive husband poor guy poor husband giving it his best shot doing what he can but hey he can only do so much it translates jesus does not try he does. He is the dragon slayer. He didn't try to save. He saved. He did not give it his best shot. He accomplished it. So husbands must know Christ. But not just know Christ. We have to love him. We said a manly husband knows Christ and loves him above all. A manly husband loves Jesus above all. So a good husband is a good Christian. 
And a good Christian will be a good husband. A husband loves Jesus more than he loves his wife. Let me say that again. A good husband loves Jesus more than he loves his wives. Why? <laughs> that was funny. I looked down the word wives. I was going to talk to wives next. A husband must love his wife. So many jokes going through my head right now. And I'm filtering every one of them out. I will not be mastered by those jokes right now. Wives, you, want, you actually want this. That may not sound good at first. I want my husband to love me more than anything. No, you want your husband to love Jesus more than he loves you. Because if he loves you more than Jesus, he is an idolater. And he has unplugged himself from the source of all love. And he will not be equipped to love you. So a manly husband loves Jesus above all. Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So a manly husband must love Jesus more than his wife. That said, number two, a manly husband loves his wife. Husbands, you must love your wives. Ephesians 5, 25 through 30. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That means more than a lot. Here it is again important we understand how Jesus loves the church. Paul is not just saying love your wives a lot when he says that. Look at, at this text in Ephesians 5 that we just read. Look at this love of Christ husbands that we are to imitate it is at least these three things it is monogamous it is sacrificial and it is efficacious husbands this love is monogamous look at verse 25 and 26 love your wives as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the word christ is committed to one bride his church a manly husband loves his wife monogamously he is as first timothy 3 2 says literally a one woman man a godly husband is a one woman man it is not good for a man to be alone and one woman is God's solution to that problem. One. He's not committing adultery. He's not committing spiritual adultery. 
His eyes are not wandering and fixating. He is not lusting. He is not looking. He's not looking at porn. He's not fantasizing. He's not flirting. He is a one-woman man. And he thinks that Mike Pence is wise to try and never be alone with a woman other than his wife. He's a one-woman man. This love is sacrificial. I won't say much about this because we, we covered it last week. But verse 25, Christ loved the church and here's sacrifice. He gave himself up for her. So a manly husband is ready to die. Ready to take a bullet, ready to take criticism, ready to take correction, ready to take the heat. It is a daily dying. It is a dying to yourself. It is love for your wife that is sacrificial. And finally, it's love that is efficacious. It's monogamous. It is sacrificial. It is efficacious. Look at verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, Okay, husband, your love for your wife should be efficacious. It means that your love should be so good that it affects your wife. Your love for your wife should be so good that it actually changes her life. Think of the effect of Christ's love on us. Husbands, you do not love your wife because she's lovely. You love your wife to make her lovely. Just think about this with me. Wives, I'm not trying to say you're not lovely. First of all. That's not what this means. But, wives, you don't want your husband's love for you to be conditioned on your loveliness. You don't want that. You want his love to be totally unconditional. And you want it to, over time, increase your loveliness. You don't love your wife because she is lovely. She's lovely. When you made those vows, I promise to have and to hold, you didn't say until you're not lovely to me anymore. Until you don't look the way you look right now, don't act the way you act right now, don't have the same exact personality that you... No, that's not what was happening. You were making a commitment to love her, and she was making a commitment to love you no matter what. It is and was a covenant relationship. Love begets loveliness. In the same way, and we'll look at this in September, respect begets respectability. And husbands complain or 
whine that their wives are not as lovely as they want them to be. And they're probably not lovely the way they want them to be because they are not loving them. Because this love is efficacious. It has an effect. Think about this. You can tell a lot about a person by looking at and listening to their spouse. This oneness relationship of husband and wife. You can learn a lot about one by looking at and listening to the other. Look at a woman who has been married to a man for 10 years and often you can tell very quickly whether she has been loved well or not. Often. Has he made her more lovely? Or has he taken a toll on her? Think of Christ's love for us. Husbands must love their wives. John Stott gives a great summary. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her in order to cleanse her, sanctify her, and ultimately present her to himself in full splendor and without any defect. In other words, his love and self-sacrifice were not an idle display, but purposive. In his purpose was not to impose an alien identity upon the church, but to free her from the spots and wrinkles which mar her beauty and to display her in her true glory. The Christian husband is to have a similar concern. His headship will never be used to suppress his wife. He longs to see her liberated from everything which spoils her true feminine identity and growing towards that glory, that perfection of fulfilled personhood, which will be the final destiny of all those whom Christ redeems. To this end, Christ gave himself. To this end, too, the husband gives himself in love. Husbands, if you are not loving your wives, that is not her problem. That is your problem. You must love your wife the way Christ loved the church, sacrificially, monogamously, efficaciously. Number three, a manly husband takes responsibility for his wife and for his family. Think about Christ again. A manly husband takes responsibility for his wife and family. Husband, your, your wife and your kids are your responsibility. And they are no one else's responsibility. Your wife is your responsibility. Your kids are your responsibility. Do not pawn them off to friends, to pastors, to coaches, to teachers, to books, and to church ministries. There is a reason that so often the children's ministries and the women's ministries are the biggest ministries in churches today. Because husbands and fathers are abdicating their responsibility. But it's our responsibility. You, husbands, love. You lead. You care for them. The opposite of this is passivity. So a manly husband takes responsibility for all of it. Listen, if there is trouble in your marriage, 
If there is an issue in your marriage, you, like Jesus, must take responsibility for things that are not your fault. And not complain about that. Your wife is your responsibility. Your family is your responsibility. She doesn't just have a problem. You have a problem. Your kids don't just have a problem. You have a problem. You go to God and others at times on behalf of them because you are the head and you are the one responsible. This does not come naturally for us. Man, this has not come naturally for us. Not since Genesis 3. Not since the curse. We run into difficulty and we buckle. And our nature is to abdicate our responsibility. Our nature, our knee-jerk reaction is to outsource this responsibility. Oh, friends will take care of it and pastors will take care of it. The church will take care of it and ministries will take care of it and the coach will take care of it and the teachers will take care of it. But no, it's ultimately your responsibility. You see this with men at a very early age. If, if something happens with a group of boys, I could say this could happen with my boys. And if there's a problem and there's an issue and I gather them together and I say something to them like this. One at a time, I want each of you to tell me what you did to contribute to this problem. And then I'll know what happened. And that's exactly what you would hear. Silence. Now, if I say I want each of you to tell me exactly what the others did so that I can have an understanding of what happened, we're good to go. There's going to be no shortage of talking. We can do that, right? Because we by nature, so, so think about this. We have a hard enough time taking responsibility, men, for things that we've done, and we're talking about taking responsibility for things you haven't done. So it's a big challenge, and it's completely and totally necessary. Husbands, if you get this, it will scare you. It's a heavy load. Isaiah 66 talks about trembling at the word of God. These are the kinds of words that husbands should tremble at. You are going to be held responsible for your family. In a unique and ultimate way, you will be held responsible. Are you taking responsibility? A manly husband must. Two more, then we're done. Number four, a manly husband provides for his wife. Remember, Adam is a, a gardener. We looked at that briefly last week. A manly husband will provide for his wife. Provide what? Yes. That's right. Right, what things do I provide? Yes. Provide materially, provide physically, emotionally, spiritually. Do you need to provide money? Yes, wives are expensive. <laughs> Children are expensive. And God has been very open-handed with you. And you should be open-handed as open-handed with your wife as you can possibly be. Do not be some sort of miser with your family. Provides. First Timothy 5.8, 
If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. One author says, and we'll look more at this next week, a godly husband should give his wife a full closet, full cupboards, and full arms. We'll talk about that with fatherhood next week and the sin of denying your wife children because of your own selfishness. Full closet, full cupboards, full arms, which means to provide husbands, where it gets hard. That means we're going to have to work hard. A husband will need to work hard. He'll need to be industrious. Proverbs is a great source to read about this. Proverbs pulls no punches. Solomon's writing to his boys, you know, in the book of Proverbs. And he has a lot to tell them. And so much of what he tells them is you must work hard. You will have a propensity to not work hard. You'll have a propensity to do just enough. And oftentimes, that won't cut it. Here's a sampling. Proverbs 12, 11, He who works his land will have abundant food, but he who chases fantasies lacks judgment. Proverbs 6, 9 through 11, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? It's in the Bible. When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Sleep. The snooze button from the devil. Proverbs 26, 13 through 16. The sluggard says, this is a this is a little rant in Proverbs 26, 13 through 16. It's great. The sluggard says, There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. So he, he lies, he makes excuses. We're supposed to be the lion. There's a lion in the streets. I can't do it. Verse 14. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard turn on his bed. No initiative. No initiative. Tomorrow. This afternoon. Next week. Next year. So hard. I mean, you know what this feels like. The sluggard, verse 15, these are, just, these are just in a row. These are just one-two punches. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. <laughs> oh, that was exhausting. I, I want it so bad, but that's, that's like 24 inches of hard work. Verse 16, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So he's proud, and he hears sermons like this and says, whatever, because we're proud. A manly husband provides. This is very important before we move on to our last one. A godly husband will provide, but listen. A godly husband is not just supposed to provide the stuff he has to provide himself he puts bread on the table but he puts himself at the table provides for his family this way 
He doesn't provide food passively. He provides for his family actively. Which means, husbands, you're going to be tired. You're probably going to have less hobbies. But you must provide yourself. It is not enough. And so many Christian husbands seem satisfied with providing all this stuff. That's not even close to enough. Your family needs stuff. But your family needs they need you. Again, more next week. The kids need you, dads. And you can't cop out by saying, I give them quality time and not quantity time. They need quality and quantity. We must provide for our family emotionally, spiritually. Which is why you need to love Jesus more than anything. You need to be feeding yourself. You need to be in God's word yourself. You need to be praying yourself. You need to be singing to God yourself so that you can read the word with your family, teach the word to your family, so that you can pray with your family, so that you can sing with your family. You need to be providing for your own soul. Otherwise, you have nothing to give to others. So a manly husband, he provides for his family. And finally, number five, a manly husband protects his wife. He loves Jesus more than his wife. He takes responsibility, loves his wife, provides for his wife, and protects his wife. Remember, Adam is not just a gardener. He's a guardian, God said. So a manly husband will be courageous. He's ready and willing to stand between his wife and harm. I think we mentioned this last week. If you hear a noise down the hall at night, you, you're, you should not elbow your wife and say, your turn. <laughs> That's not right. That's your job. That is your responsibility to protect her. Nehemiah 4.14 and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. A manly husband will be willing to fight. So many of us men do not know how to fight. Or we were told when we were young that fighting was bad rather than just being told who you're supposed to fight and how you're supposed to fight. But if you're going to protect your family physically, you may need to fight. And certainly, husbands, if you're going to protect your wives spiritually, you will need to know how to fight. To fight your own sin, to wage war against your common enemy, you will need to protect your wife. You must protect her spiritually. You must set standards for your home. You must be careful the kind of music you listen to. You need to be careful what kind of books you read. You need to be careful what kind of magazines you read. You need to be careful 
what you watch on Netflix. You need to be careful what movies you see. You need to be careful what you seek out for entertainment with your wife. Your standards need to be very high. You need to make sure that you're setting your mind and heart on things that are good and pure and noble, setting your mind on things that are above and not on the earth below. You cannot love the world or anything in the world, and this is how you love your wife. You need to protect her from those things and not indulge in them with her. And so many husbands do that. You're supposed to be a guardian. And you're just letting sin and wickedness and filth run in and out of your house. What are you doing? Take responsibility and protect your wife and protect your children. It's not enough that you have a handgun in a safe. The dangers spiritually are far greater. Do not let sin abide between you and your wife. You take initiative. You take responsibility. Stop waiting for her to come and say sorry. I do that often. And I'm ashamed to say it. Break the ice, men. Break through the awkwardness, men. Initiate reconciliation with your wife. Don't let sin get a foothold. Don't let the sun go down. It's a way that you are protecting your family. It's a way that you are protecting your wife. You need to pursue her. You need to initiate as you provide for her and protect her from the enemy. So in conclusion, boys, we have boys here today. I'm always thinking about this because I have boys, by God's grace, five boys. Boys, become these men. Do not listen to conventional wisdom. It is not wisdom. There is a way that seems right to the culture you live in. And in the end, Scripture says it leads to death. But boys, go to the Word. Become these men. Boys, you have an obligation to be manly. And this is what manliness looks like. Grown boys... Become these men. There's boys and there's grown boys. Boys who shave. You shouldn't be boys anymore, but maybe you are. And this word from God hits hard. Become these men. Husbands, those of you who are husbands, I don't know. Have we described you this morning? Has this described you this morning? Many husbands will say, I'm leading, but they're not following. I'm talking, but they're not listening. You're probably not leading. 
Here's what responsibility sounds like. You're probably not leading. You're probably not sacrificing yourself. You're probably not taking responsibility. You're probably not protecting your home and providing for your home. And your wife knows it and your kids know it and they could not care less what you have to say. Don't point the finger. Don't blame. Don't make excuses. Men, own it. Own it. You have everything you need to turn this around in Christ. You have, if you wanted, a church that loves you. You have other godly men who love you. You have other godly men who have struggled and are struggling and know what the fight is all about. You certainly have a God who loves you. And you have everything you need in Christ. So it is on our plate. If you are here this morning and you would like to talk to me about this, I'll make myself available at the front after service. If you've been convicted, you want help, you want to confess sin? I'd be happy to talk with you, as I know other men in this church would be happy to talk with you. Turn from your sin. Confess specifically and clearly what you have done that you should not have done and what you have not done that you should have done. Ask for the forgiveness of those you have sinned against and commit to changing by the grace of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the, the call of your word and for the comfort of your word. I thank you for this high standard that you have set for us as husbands. Oh God, help us not to buckle underneath this. Help us to be men and to stand strong. Help us to be the kind of men who are willing to give ourselves up and to die every day for those you've given us to love. God, convict us of our selfishness. Convict us of our pride and our arrogance and our unbelief and call us to be godly husbands for your namesake and the good of our families. God, I feel the weight of this now. I ask that in my own heart and again in the hearts of other men in this room that you would produce the kind of fruit that we long for. God, we need you to make us manly husbands and fathers. We ask these things in Jesus' name.